This morning, we are going to be continuing in a series that BP started last week. It's a series that we do every year, and uh, it's one of the things I, I look forward to almost more than anything else during the year is this sermon series on truth in art. And you know, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, we did music. Last year, we looked at the cinema and the truth in the cinema. And this year, we're looking at novels. And um, last week, BP introduced the series by having us look at Cormac McCarthy, the author, and the novel, particularly that he wrote called The Road, that's been made into a movie. This morning, we're going to look at a very different kind of writer, somewhat, someone that uh, some of you have read, a fellow named Wendell Berry. And uh, before we get into that, let's pray together for a minute. Father in heaven, thank you for the thought and the reflections of Wendell Berry on life. And I pray now as we consider his ideas in the light of your scriptures, that you would give us open hearts and minds to understand not just what's being said, but Lord, that we would think about it and reflect upon it and consider the difference that it would make in our own lives. As we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, to understand anybody's writings, you need to have an understanding a little bit about the person, Wendell Berry. And uh, I thought I'd give you just a little bit of a background. The most important thing that for many of you need to know, as far as I can trace, there's no relationship with Martha Berry, okay? None whatsoever. But uh, Wendell Berry actually comes from five generations of farmers uh, from Henry County, Kentucky, and uh, went to the University of Kentucky both for a bachelor's and master's degree, studying what it means to be a writer, a novelist, and a poet, and an essayist. And uh, after finishing at University of Kentucky with his master's, he took his family to Stanford University for a year of study, then was given a fellowship and a year in, in, in Paris studying and working. And then after that, he came back to the States and was able to land his dream job in New York City. Uh, as a professor of writing at New York University. You know, it's one of these things, I'm sure all of us have kind of the job that we'd all like to have. And Barry was able to move right into that role and actually uh, ended up being the head of the department, the English department there for a period of time. But after about three years of living and working and teaching in New York City, something was wrong. Something just disquieted him. And... Uh, as he reflected and thought about that and talked with his wife, he decided that he had a deeper identity than someone teaching writing in New York City. He had an identity as someone from Kentucky. And so, believe it or not, he left his dream job. He quit his dream job. And he took his family and moved back to Kentucky and bought into the family farm. And while he continued to teach off and on at the University of Kentucky, he settled into a personal rhythm of life as a husband, a father, a farmer, a writer, a neighbor, and a friend. As Barry shares it, he grew up in the church, but when in his teen and college years, he rejected Christianity. And though his wife continued to be faithful in her going to church and in her belief in Christ, uh, he, he had rejected that until, as a farmer in Kentucky and writer, he was asked to give a lecture at Southern Baptist Seminary. And as he prepared for this lecture, 
he was forced to return to a study and a gaining understanding of what the scriptures teach. And he, he learned that the scriptures supported much of his own cultural critique. And while he continued to struggle, and has continued to struggle over the years with the church, today Barry would describe himself as a person who takes the gospel seriously. Now, another novelist that we aren't going to be looking at in this series, but a very perceptive novelist named Walker Piercy, once made this intriguing statement. He said, bad books lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. And this is true not just about books. This is true about movies, about music, about any kind of art. And the reason I think that many become attracted to Barry is because Barry's stories are honest about the truth of the human condition about who we are, about why we are. He says that life is messy. It's difficult. It involves contemplation and, and second guesses. It has stops and starts with conflicting emotions and sadness and uncertainty. As you can imagine, after writing all these years, literally, volumes of poetry and essays about the, the world that we live in and over 11 different novels and short uh, compilations of short stories. Barry's writings are far-ranging. But this morning we're primarily going to focus on three themes found particularly in his novel entitled Jaber Crow. Jaber Crow, J-A-B-R Crow. Interesting name. The first thing we, theme we want to look at this morning is the theme of community. Community. Barry's stories, his novels, and his short stories are all built around a small town on the Kentucky River called Port William. And the main character in this novel, Jaber Crow, grew up in Port William until he was orphaned at age 10 when he was sent then to an orphanage to live through his high school years. After high school, he went to Bible school for a short time with the idea of maybe becoming a minister, but quickly dropped out of school and eventually made his way back to Port William and ended up serving there as the barber of Port William for over 30 years. Now, one of the things that Jaber yearned for, maybe coming out of his experience as an orphan, but actually reflecting, I think, something that all of us can understand and relate to, one of the things he yearned for was community. And he eventually found it with all of its joys and warts in Port William. Uh, the idea of, of community is a critical theme in all of Barry's works, but it's important for us as we yearn for stability and community in our lives. This morning, you see, I've asked Julie Chambers to join me this, on stage, and Julie's going to share some different readings this morning from Jaber Crow, and I've asked her to read a portion uh, this morning as Jaber envisions the people of Port William as a community. What I saw now was the community, imperfect and irresolute, but held together by the frayed and always fraying incomplete, and yet ever holding bonds of the various sorts of affection. There had maybe never been anybody who had not been loved by somebody, who had not been loved by somebody else, and so on and so on. 
It was a community always disappointed in itself, disappointing its members, always trying to contain its divisions and gentle its meanness, always failing and yet always preserving a sort of will toward goodwill. My vision gathered the community as it never has been and never will be gathered in this world of time. For the community must always be marred by members who are indifferent to it or against it, who are nonetheless its members and may nonetheless essential be to it. And yet I saw them all as somehow perfected beyond time by one another's love, compassion, and forgiveness, as it is said, we may be perfected by grace. Now there's some beautiful themes in this quote about community. Imperfect and yet irresolute, ever holding bonds of some sorts, various sorts of affections. A community always disappointed with itself and yet trying to contain its divisions and be gentle in its meanness. Always failing, yet always preserving some will towards goodwill. There's a beauty in how Wendell Berry views community. Always disappointed, yet somehow being perfected beyond time by grace. It's a beautiful idea. But it draws us to an important question. And the question is this. Can a community of care and gratitude become something of a reality or must it be relegated to, fic to a fictional world? And if it can somehow become something of a reality, how does that happen? I'd like to suggest to you, as you ponder that question, a passage from the Scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Now, you have to understand the context of what Paul is writing about in Ephesians. He's writing to a church that's made up primarily of Gentiles who had come to Christ, but also had in it a significant number of Jews. You also have to understand that in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, the Jews despised the Gentiles for so many reasons, for taking over their land, for subjugating them, for being cruel rulers over them. But most of all, they hated them because the, the Gentiles did not understand, appreciate, or submit to the law of God. And so they despised them. But now, in Christ, through a, much, a significant amount of turmoil and struggle over many years, Gentiles were becoming Christians. Now, how was the Jew and the Gentile to live together in the same church when they have grown up with hatred towards one another, despising one another? It makes the racial tensions and the issues of immigration that we're facing in our country look like the minor leagues. And yet, Paul the Apostle speaks directly to this idea of community in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is what he says. For he, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made both of us, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, 
thereby killing the hostility. You see what Paul is saying there? He said, what Jesus has done on the cross is break down the animosity that has separated our peoples. And in his cross, he has brought us to humility, to a place of repentance for both Jew and Gentile, so that neither of them can look at each other and have an attitude of despising and hatred, but because they both understand their own brokenness, and they've both been brought to the cross of Jesus, and at that cross have discovered his forgiveness, they can learn what it means to forgive one another and to live together in peace, not some kind of ethereal hope and expectation that would come about through human laws, but because of the transformation of the soul through the redemption of Jesus Christ in making person, a person new through being born again. And Paul literally says that experience of being renewed by the Holy Spirit and changed can cause us to be able to live together and to forgive one another and to repent to one another and to accept one another into a community of hope. We don't see this too often in the church. We're caught up in our own agendas. We're caught up in our own visions. And yet what Christ did on the cross was to say, Come unto me, all you who are weak and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, which as Jeremy so beautifully showed, means coming to repentance and giving up our own agenda and accepting one another in love and care in the name of Jesus in the way that he has accepted us. This is the vision of community that Wendell Berry reflects in his idea of what he wanted to see and hoped to see even as they, they required grace, and even as they recognized that it would never come to perfection, but it would proximately happen as people learn to care for one another, and from our view, care for one another because they have been cared for in the name of Jesus. Where are you today? Where are you today in your relationships? Where is there brokenness in your community? What Paul would say is we have to come back to the cross and that the cross discover again and again and again that we have been accepted in the beloved. And because of his acceptance, we are called to love one another as we have been loved. Community. The second theme we want to look at in Barry's work of Jaber Crow is the idea of humility. It fits right together with the idea of, of community. <clears throat> now, humility, when you think of humility, you might think of somebody who's been humbled, someone who is building themselves up and they have been humbled. <clears throat> you might think of the time Jeremy or I did face plants on the stage when we were trying to come up here. Yeah, that's humility, but that's not the humility that, that Barry is talking about. Humility, from Barry's perspective, is an understanding and acceptance of our human place in the order of all creation. It's born out of an understanding of our human limitations and our brokenness. Barry is 
always quick to show us through his characters that all of us have limitations, that all of us are broken people. And his idea of humility is based on a, not only an understanding of our brokenness, but recognizing our dependence upon one another and our dependence upon the earth and our dependence upon our work and on God. You see, Barry would view humanity as interdependent without being able to stand by itself, but requiring one another's, just like Paul the Apostle writes again and again about our one another's in the Scriptures. And he would say we're not only dependent on one another, we're also dependent upon the earth. And so you'll see a consistent theme in Barry's writings upon our, our need to be respectful and responsible towards the earth as well as towards our work and seeing our work as a, as a blessing from God and then recognizing our place as one aspect, one place in, a, in, the, in the broader work of God in the world. And then in order to bring us to this place of humility, he said this quote actually later on, that fallibility is an infection in us that we inevitably will communicate to our works. So do you see it? Do you see that humility... Understanding our finite condition, our broken condition, is critically important to self-acceptance, to acceptance of others, to respect for the world, and respect for what's happening in the world. Again, I'm asking Julie to read to us a, uh, a short section from Jaber Crow as he's reflecting upon this idea of Humil uh, of, of being humble and humility through reflecting on a person by the name of Cecilia Overlord. Cecilia Overlord thought that whatever she already had was no good by virtue of the fact that she already had it. The things she desired all were things she didn't have. She could fill a room with hate just by walking in. That was her impact, the way she made you feel at first. And then, if you were willing, you could finally see through there to the mere human she was, a mere human whose hate came from misery. The problem, you see, is that Cecilia had some reason on her side. She had an argument. I don't think she could pro be proved right. On the other hand, you can't prove her wrong. Theoretically, there is always a better place for a person to live, better work to do, a better spouse to wed, better friends to have, but then, this, but then this person must meet herself coming back. Theoretically, there's always a better inhabitant of this place, a better member of this community, a better worker, spouse, and friend than she is. This surely describes one of the circles of hell, and who hasn't traveled around it a time or two? I've got to this age now where I can see how short a time we have to be here, and when I think about it, it can seem strange beyond telling that this particular bunch of us should be here on this little patch of ground in this little patch of time, and I can think of the other times and places I might have lived, the other kinds of man I might have been, but there is something else. There are moments when the heart is generous, and then it knows that for better or worse, our lives are woven together here, one with another, and with the place and all the living things. Humility. Community. The same perspective is seen in Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, we discover who man is in the midst of God's created order. The psalmist writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What does this mean for us, this need for humility? It means that we accept our brokenness what Barry calls our fallibility. It it means that we, in humility, can begin to accept one another. We can begin to accept our place in this earth and our responsibilities in it. Community. Humility. And then the last theme, the theme that God is weaving our lives together for his purposes. Barry doesn't take on the mantle of a preacher, but he does demonstrate again and again that God's ways are mysterious and very difficult for us to understand. And the best grasp we can get is by reflecting in hindsight on what's actually happened. At the same time, through Barry's writings, we can see that God is working his purposes out. And the scriptures would say he's doing it for his good and for our glory, excuse me, for our good and for his glory. Julie's going to, again, share with us one of the poignant reflections Jaber gives on his own life. If you could do it, I suppose it would be a good idea to live your life in a straight line, starting, say, in the dark wood of error and proceeding by logical steps through hell and purgatory and into heaven. Or you could take the king's highway, past appropriately named dangers, toils, and snares, and finally cross the river of death and enter the celestial city. But that is not the way I've done it so far. I'm a pilgrim, but my pilgrimage has been wandering and unmarked. Often what has looked like a straight line to me has been a circle or a doubling back. I have been in the dark wood of error any number of times. I have known something of hell, purgatory, and heaven, but not always in that order. The names of many snares and dangers have been made known to me, but I have seen them only in looking back. Often I have not known where I was going until I was already there. I've had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me, or I've gone to it mainly by way of mistakes and surprises. Often I've received better than I have deserved. Often my fairest hopes have rested on bad mistakes. I'm an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley. And yet for a long time, looking back, I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I have been led. Make of that what you will. Make of that what you will. This passage from Jaber Crow reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This passage demonstrates what Barry showed, the inevitable tension, our responsibility, and God's overarching purposes. 
And what Barry would communicate to us through Jaber Crow and his other writings, it's not our responsibility to figure out all that God's doing in the world. It's our responsibility to faithfully, faithfully work out our salvation in our little corner of the world, believing that God is at work to will and to do His good purpose. And so we see these three themes, community, humility, and the fact that God is weaving our lives together for His purposes. And through Jaber Crow, we're called to a biblical understanding of the way the world really is. And then to consider whether we are willing to work at being members of this community, of this church, the broader community of Rome, members in humility, believing God is working His purposes out in our lives, our relationships, and our vocation. I'd like to close by sharing the story of two friends of mine who did this. Not perfectly, not here in Rome, but in their own little corner of the world. Don and Jean Peterson had both experienced joys and sorrows in their lives. Don was a graduate of MIT and of Rutgers University. He was retired as the president of Continental Electric Motor Company. In the world's eyes, Don was a successful man. Jean did her undergraduate in nursing and got her master's degree in education and for years taught nursing. Again, from the eyes of many, a successful life. What you wouldn't see and can't see is that both of them had faced deep personal pain and had experienced family turmoil which ended their first marriages in divorce. And so Don and Jean met together at a Christian fellowship group and married in 1984. They took early retirement and they invested themselves in the messiness of their community. Don counseled men with drug and alcohol addiction. Jean volunteered faithfully as a, in the local crisis pregnancy center. Together they, they counseled couples with troubled marriages they provided character references in the court. They quietly helped couples by loaning them money without interest for their mortgages. Dean and John spearheaded a very effective divorce recovery ministry in their church. And this is when I had a chance to get to know them, traveling to New Jersey, spending time with them, and spending time in their church doing divorce recovery seminars and interacting with them. And their commitment was such that later we asked them to serve on the board of directors of our divorce recovery ministry nationally. Now, 15 years ago today, on Tuesday, December, September 11th, <coughs> Don and Jean were scheduled to fly to San Francisco for the family reunion at Yosemite National Park. They arrived at the Newark airport early and decided to catch an earlier flight to San Francisco. Flight 93. The rest is history. 
Flight 93 was hijacked to crash, <coughs> excuse me, to crash either into the U.S. Capitol or into the White House. But the passengers fought back. But before they could take control of the plane, the plane crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I don't know what Don and Jean did when they were on that plane. What would you call it? Bad luck? Just a chance? If Don was here this morning, standing in front of you, he would say that he and Gene were simply working out their salvation with fear and trembling. And like I said, I have no idea what they did on that plane. Were they quietly praying? Were they comforting others? Were they sharing their hope of the gospel? I have no idea. But I do know this. I know their pattern of life, their quiet humility, and the way they invested in, each, in other people's lives in Jesus' name. What you have here is, what you saw before was the, uh, was the memorial at nine, at, at, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and then what you have in the next slide is the particular uh, memorial part for Don and for Jean. Now, Wendell Berry leaves us with this question this morning, which we all have to grapple with. Can we know the world, this world of messiness and brokenness, this world of hurt and sorrow, this work of mistakes and failures? Can we know this world and all that is in it and still love it? Wendell Berry, as well as Donna Jean Peterson, would respond in their writings and in their life and say, yes, yes we can, but we do it by humbly submitting to God and then serving our community, whether it's in Rome, Georgia, or Kentucky, or New Jersey, or on a hijacked airplane. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for Wendell Berry. Thank you, Lord, that he shows us a vision of community that none of us have ever experienced and all of us cry for. Oh, Lord Jesus, may Seven Hills Fellowship be a place that begins proximately to address itself as a community of loving and compassion in Rome, Georgia, so that the world would know that we are your disciples. Lord, that can't happen without humility. Lord, no, you know how broken we are. You know how frail we are, how weak we are. Help us, Lord, to understand ourselves in our place in this world. And then by your grace, Lord, to see that in the bigger picture that you are working your purposes out. Through the pain and the sorrow, through the struggle and the difficulties, through the hijackings and the confusions, through the arguments and the fights, as well as through the joys 
and the births of babies and their laughter and the friendships and the love. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see you working your purposes out, even through us, in our community, in humility before the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.